Good evening, everybody, and good morning to those of you that will be listening to this in the morning. And we'll begin our Dhamma talk evening in the usual way, chanting the refuges and the precepts together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhammam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Dhammam Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Panatipata Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Adina Dana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Avrakmacharya Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Musawada Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Vikala Bojana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Ucha Sayana Mahasayana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhi Ami Idame Silam Maga Palanyana sa pachayo o tu. This evening's talk is about the wholesome and beautiful mind. And I'd like to begin the talk with a poem by the wonderful Buddhist poet, Jane Hirschfield. She calls this poet, poem, Silk Cord. In the dream, the string had broken, and I was trying to pick out its beads among all others. The large coral beads, the beads of turquoise and ivory, these were not mine. Carved and ridged with color, burnished, weighty, my hands passed over them without regret or pause. The tiny ones of glass, almost invisible against the white cotton bedspread, these were mine. 
the hole in the center scarcely discernible as different from the bead itself, the bead around it scarcely discernible as different from the bed or floor or air. With trembling fingers, I lifted them into the jar, my other hand cupped closely to one breast. Not precious, merely glass, almost invisible. How terrified I was at the thought of missing even one. While I live, I thought they are mine to care for. Then wakened heavy, heavy, with what I recognized at once as an entirely warranted grief. Frantic for something plain and clear and almost without substance that I myself had scattered, that I myself must find. So the wholesome and beautiful mind that we ourselves must find and that we are finding. <clears throat> the Abhidhamma speaks about 36 wholesome mental factors, 36 mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful and are associated with concentration and also with vipassana practice as mindfulness and concentration and intuitive insight unfold and blossom. These 36 wholesome mental states or mental factors are associated with the development phase of concentration and the manifestation also of jhana. And they also occur during the development and the manifestation of metta to varying degrees. 29 of these wholesome and beautiful mental states or mental factors are universally developed throughout our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome only if they're accompanied by a wholesome consciousness. What this means will all become clearer as we go on with exploring these various mental factors. The first five factors are wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration and also with the focus of attention involved with meta practice. With the first Two factors also being absolutely necessary and active components throughout our practice of insight, throughout our mindfulness-based insight vipassana practice. The last three of these five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during the particular specific act, uh, during some particular specific aspects of our vipassana practice, and also during specific stages of the development and manifestation of concentration and of the jhana absorption, and also in relationship with the development and the manifestation of metta to varying degrees. So these five wholesome mental factors of mind are really aspects of all, all of our practices. Sayada Upandita used to call these mental factors and the manifestations of these mental factors experientially as our Dhamma delights. These first five wholesome factors of mind are aspects of practice that each of you are currently experiencing without a doubt 
to varying degrees right here and now in this very retreat. So I'd like to explore these first five uh, wholesome mental factors um, a little bit more uh, deeply than just naming them for you. They're also sometimes called the five jhana factors. Some of you have mentioned that and heard that. So the first one, the initial application of the mind, the Pali word is vitaka. That's already been discussed a little bit by both myself and Christina. This is the application of the mind, the application of our attention to the object, vitaka. So it's, its characteristic is the directing of the mind onto the object. Its function classically is described as to strike at or to thresh the object. Thresh is an interesting word used, of course, with harvesting. So to thresh the object, threshing wheat, for instance. And it manifests as leading the mind to the object. You've all been leading your mind, leading your attention to the object. And the object itself is what's called the proximate cause for this initial application, the proximate cause for vitaka. As a jhana factor, it's the absorption of the mind into the object. And vitaka has the special task, we could say, of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, inhibiting the hindrance of sleepiness and lethargy. Vitaka can be experienced and understood as intention, right intention, as in the Noble Eightfold Path. And it is, Itaka is both a wholesome and a beautiful mental factor. It's wholesome and beautiful only uh, what, depending on what it is attending to. We can certainly direct the mind, uh, the attention of the mind to unwholesome, various unwholesome experiences, activities, objects, etc. We've all done that. I once, many years ago, when I was teaching at the Forest Refuge, had a student who was a professional gambler. And he was very honest, much to his credit. He was very honest and direct about the fact that he was practicing concentration meditation because it helped him be a better gambler. He wasn't pretending anything. That's what he was doing it for. He was like a character out of a movie. He was amazing. I'd never met anybody like that. And I suspect he was a really terrific gambler because he was a terrific concentrator and he knew that it was going to help him. So he was devoted and dedicated to developing concentration as to great a degree as possible. I thought it was quite amazing. I was kind of fascinated by the whole situation. And um, he was quite successful. I don't know. He didn't talk about how successful he was as a gambler, but I'm sure he was, as I already said, quite successful. So the wholesomeness of it really depends on what we're directing our attention to and the motivation behind it, of course. The second of these five factors of mind, potentially wholesome and beautiful factors of mind, also called jhana factors, as I've already mentioned, is the Pali word is vichara. And that translates as sustained application. It has the characteristic of continued pressure. Classically, it's called continued pressure 
In the Vasudhimaga, it's called stroking the object in the sense of meaning mindful presence in relationship to the object of attention, sustaining sustained mindful presence in relationship to the object of attention. So another way of saying this is the continued exercise of the mind on the object. Its function is sustained application of the associated mental phenomena, the associated mental phenomena in relationship to the object. And of course, the object itself is the proximate cause for this sustained application, for this vichara attention, sustained attention. There's some wonderful similes. Uh, in the Vasudhimaga, highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. So the first one, vitaka, initial application, one of the similes is a bird spreading its wings to fly, spreading out its wings to fly, vitaka. Sustained application, vichara, like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings. Another simile for uh, Vitaka initial application is like a bee diving towards a flower. And in relationship to this uh, metaphor or simile, an, uh, Vitaka, like a bee buzzing above the flower. So as I mentioned the other day, I really, there's so many uh, similes or metaphors, we call them metaphors, I, they're translated as similes in the classical translations, but so many of them are nature oriented. And uh, I really find that uh, uh, very inspiring and I relate to it and I suspect most of you do too. It's, it's quite wonderful. It keeps us in tune with, uh, it's all about nature, we're not different. The whole process is natural, you could say. In deep concentration and jhana, vichara serves to temporarily inhibit the hindrance of doubt. So the third wholesome, potentially wholesome and beautiful, excuse me, state is in Pali Piti. There's lots of different translations for it. One of them is uh, joy. And a lot of times it's, it's translated as zest, which I like. That has a certain quality to it that many of you have experienced. The characteristic of PT, P-I-T-I, PT, is that it's, it's quite enduring, as many of you have experienced to varying degrees. And it can be uh, explained and experienced as delight or a pleasurable interest in the object. And its function is to refresh the mind and body. And it often can pervade the mind and in its earliest stages, also the body in its initial stages with kinds of thrills, feelings of thrills. And sometimes this is described as rapture. It's translated as rapture. Though I uh, think that this word really doesn't cover all of the nuances, nuances of, the, of this experience. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. It manifests as elation often for people. And its proximate cause is the mind and the body. The Pali word nama rupa. Mind, nama, rupa, body, nama, rupa. In other words, having a heart, mind, and being in a body is the proximate cause for the experiences of piti. In the commentaries 
in the Visuddhimagga commentaries, which if uh, some of you have never looked at, it's worth, uh, not during the retreat, don't start reading it, but it's worth looking at. It's fascinating. And it has enormous amount of information about the actual practice experiences that we have. So it's worth exploring at some point along the way of your practice. So in these commentaries, there are five grades, we could say, of PT uh, that, uh, that are developed during a concentration of a practice, the development of the mind through concentration. And I'd like to just go over these. And you will recognize some of them. You have had some of these experiences to a lesser or greater degree. The first is called minor joy or minor zest. And they say it's able to raise the hairs on the body. That's the first one. The second one is called momentary joy or momentary zest. And this is like, like flashes of lightning in the mind. And I know uh, many of you have had bits and pieces of that, little flashes of light or lightning in the mind. The third is called showering joy or showering zest. And this breaks over the whole body again and again and again, like, like waves on the seashore. The next one is called uplifting joy or uplifting zest. And this, this can cause the body to levitate or at least feel like it's levitating so that you're being really, really ooh, uplifted. I know some of you have experienced that. There's a story that I, I'm sure is true. It was told to me by a monk. Um, he didn't lie because he took uh, the precept of right speech. And anyways, he was a monk, had been a monk for many years. He wasn't lying. Um, there's a story about a, a monk. It, and I think the monk, this was at the uh, Saida Upandita's monastery quite a number of years ago who lived there and was practicing quite diligently. And he was experiencing this uplifting joy, this uplifting zest uh, quite regularly. Uh, and he was actually, his body would lift up off the seat that he was sitting in, in his, in his uh, little meditation hut, little meditation cottage. Well, he did uh, something that wasn't actually quite kosher, so to say. He bragged about it to the other monks, I'm told. So the other monks, they, they were so fascinated and none of them were having that experience and they, they wanted to see it happen. They, they didn't know if they believed it or not. They, so they asked him, could they watch? Could they see it? He said, sure, yeah. Come to the window of my kuti, my little meditation hut, at such and such a time, such and such a day on such and such a time, look through the window and you'll see it. So he, he uh, went into his meditation, concentration, and, and was there he was. And he was concentrating and his body, it would lift up and then fall over, I was told. He'd go up, 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 and then fall over. And he did that. It happened a couple times. And he put on this show uh, for the monks. And uh, they were happy to see it. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a possibility. But don't brag about it. That's not a good idea. Keep it to yourself. You could tell your teacher, but that's probably the only one. <laughs> OK, so the next one. Uh, pervading joy or pervading zest. And this experiences like a flooding, like a flooding of the whole mind and body with a wonderfully refreshing, uh, bright elation. Like it's often described and it described in the Vasudhimaga, like a flood that fills a cavern. So this, this is the, uh, I, how many are there? One, two, three, four, five. Five uh, manifestations of PT. 
And these are part of what Sayadaw Upandita used to call our Dhamma delights. He would say, we experience these to whatever degree, and some of them and some not of them, but uh, and they, they're part of what keeps us going with practice, at least for a while, because they're so delightful. So don't um, push them away, just, and don't get attached to them. If you cling to them and attach to them, what happens? They disappear. How about that? They just disappear. Yeah, they won't happen. Clinging is like shutting them out, in a sense. But recognize them if they happen and appreciate it. And allow it to delight, be, take delight in it. The next of these five initial five uh, factors of mind is called in Pali Sukha. And it translates as happiness, usually, a kind of sweet happiness. As a jhana factor, and also as a developing factor of concentration especially as it's developing uh, more deeply, it's a very pleasant and easeful, joyful mental feeling. It's soft, it's sweet. It's a sweet, blissful mental feeling born of detachment from all sensual pleasures. It's not coming from sensual pleasures. So it's explained as a kind of unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it counters the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And it's very, very easy to get attached to because it is so sweet and so pleasant. At one point I told my teacher that this one I had to be really, really careful of because it was so easy to get attached to. And then I remember telling him, I think this is what everybody wants. This is what all human beings want. And so it's so easy to get stuck to it. So be careful when it shows up, but it's very pleasant and allow yourself to enjoy it. Piti and sukha are closely related, but they're definitely not the same. So just in terms of the difference between them, classically, piti is compared to the delight of a weary traveler in the desert who would experience what, what a weary traveler in the desert would experience when they came across an oasis. That's how PT is kind of defined uh, in this context. And in this context, sukha is defined or compared to this weary traveler's pleasure after bathing and drinking water at the oasis. So they're related, but they're not the same. You can imagine yourself as that weary traveler. The last of these five mental factors, wholesome and beautiful mental factors, is in Pali, ikagata, which means one-pointedness, translates as one-pointedness. A one-pointed state, we could say. And this, this mental factor is the primary component in all developing samatha. And we could say that it is the essence of concentration. It's the essence of samatha. It's the essence of samadhi. One-pointedness, ikagata. One-pointedness temporarily inhibits sensual desire. And it is also a necessary condition, actually, 
for any meditative attainment. The function of ikagata is that of closely contemplating the object, which is the most salient and the most obvious characteristic of a developing concentration and also the development of jhana. It's not about investigating, but being mindful of, and in, in this translation, it's called uh, contemplating the object, mind being mindful of the object, but not with a lot of investigative attention. But ikagata cannot perform its function on its own. It's actually, in terms of the degree of development of a, of a deep development of ikagata, it's the last of the five that's developed to a, a great degree. And it's dependent to function. It has, it has to have the other four factors, other four mental factors that we've just explored in place in order for it to function. Each of the other four performing its own special function. Vitaka, applying the attention. Vichara, sustaining the attention. Piti, experiencing the delight in the object and sukha experiencing a sweet happiness in the object. So those are the first five of these 36 potentially wholesome and beautiful mental factors that we're developing or that are developing because we're practicing uh, with each of us, each of you and all of us. The next uh, factor is <clears throat> in Pali called adimoka. And that translates usually as decision. And it literally means releasing the mind onto the object, releasing the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. I, I really like the way of holding this as the releasing of the mind on the object. It has the characteristic of conviction and the function of not groping around. And so it manifests as decisiveness or sometimes I like to say clarity. It's not rigid, but it has the, the uh, quality of decisiveness and clarity. Its proximate cause is that it, it needs something to be convinced about. So are you convinced about your practice, doing your practice and convinced about the process? You're on the way with Adimoka. Classically, it's been compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. The next of these states of mind is in Pali, virya, or energy as it's translated. And this is the state or the action of one who's vigorous. Its characteristic is supporting, exerting, mobilizing. And classically, the word marshalling is used. I sometimes don't use that word because it sounds a little militaristic, but, but we can look at it from a different perspective and it, it makes sense. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. So energy supporting the states that we are experiencing and that are developing. So supporting the states that it's associated with and it manifests as non-collapsing. So the mind, heart, non-collapsing, not collapsing. 
the proximate cause of this energy is a sense of spiritual urgency, which we talked about the first night of the retreat. So that's a proximate cause, but there are other causes, certainly. Uh, some ground for arousing uh, energy. So interest, inspiration, maybe from uh, a teacher or the inspiration we get from other Dhamma students that we're associated with, enthusiasm that comes from that interest and the inspiration. All of this rooted in our own experience and maybe also rooted somewhat in some study that we've done that brings uh, interest and inspiration and enthusiasm, and maybe also uh, stimulates a spiritual urgency, sambhaga. So virya, energy, that that stirs one towards a vigorous action, meaning in this case, a vigorous action to practice. The next uh, uh, quality or the next, uh, well, quality characteristic, the next uh, factor of mind is wholesome desire. And it's important because often uh, Buddhism uh, is misunderstood as all desire is bad. That's not true. So there's wholesome desire and the Pali word for that is chanda. which translates often as the desire to act, the desire to perform an action to, reach, to, uh, to achieve a result from a wholesome perspective. And this, this wholesome desire, chanda, needs to be distinguished from the unwholesome desire that stems from greed and that stems from lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. And of course, it functions as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal, as within our practice and other aspects of our life as well. And in the Visuddhimagga, there's a wonderful uh, metaphorical uh, explanation of chanda. It's spoken of as the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. The stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. What a beautiful metaphor. So there's still a long list of these. I'm not going to go over each one of them as much as I have these, these first eight uh, in the list. Um, maybe it's eight, maybe it's even more. I'm not sure. But I'm going to list them all, may mention them all, and I'll just say a few words about some of them. We, we would be here for hours if I were to talk about each one, one of these, and I'm not up for being here for hours to talk. So, And neither are you, I'm sure. So the next one is faith, not a blind faith, but rather a faith that is rooted in one's experience, coming from one's experience, faith in the teachings and faith in the practices that come from your own experience. So it's, it's not a blind faith. It's an experiential faith, we could say, based in experience. The next one, which I'm not going to talk about because we've already talked about it quite a bit, is mindful, mindfulness. Very, very important. The next two go together. Hiri and Otapa. Hiri usually uh, translated and has been talked a bit about by, uh, by Christina and by me a bit. Moral shame, Hiri and uh, moral dread or fear of wrongdoing, otapa. And it's rooted in, in the uh, heartful consideration 
towards non-harming others or not harming oneself, Yudhi Otapa. The next two are listed as non-greed, non-hatred. And the next, uh, next one is called neutrality of mind. So what is neutrality of mind? Neutrality of mind is what develops out of uh, a developing and then profound equanimity. The neutrality of mind. We could say neutrality of mind and heart because I usually put them together, heart and mind. Next one is tranquility of mind. Tranquility of consciousness. And then lightness. Light, not light, but lightness as opposed to heaviness. Lightness of mind, lightness of consciousness. And following that, malleability of mind. Malleability of consciousness, meaning the mind is very easily able to move from object to object to object. It's very malleable. Now, as I'm reading all these, remember, this is what's developing within your own heart mind as you're doing this practice. It really is. And if you're hearing this, you can maybe touch in and recognize some of this happening in your own experience. Following the malleability, the list says wieldiness, wieldiness of mind, wieldiness of consciousness, meaning the flexibility and the quickness of mind, the non-rigidity, we could say is another way of saying it. Flexibility and quickness of mind, non-rigidity of mind, wieldiness. Following that, proficiency of mind, proficiency of consciousness. And this means the clarity and the preciseness that's available in our mind. As we practice, it develops the clarity and the preciseness, the proficiency of mind and consciousness. Following that, honesty or uprightness of mind, honesty and uprightness of consciousness. And then following this are the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings. Metta, unconditional kindness, unconditional loving kindness, unconditional friendship, compassion, appreciative or empathetic joy. And the fourth Brahma-vihara divine abiding is equanimity. And following these four divine abidings is non-delusion, which we'll talk about just a little bit in a few minutes. There are three more beautiful mental factors that are called the abstinences. They're very, they're three very distinct mental factors that the Buddha spoke about quite often that come about in three very specific ways. So we'll explore this just a little bit. The first is called natural abstinence. And this is the, the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm classically called evil deeds. I don't usually use that word because in English, it's a kind of an archaic way of speaking of it, but uh, deeds, mental and physical deeds that cause harm to ourselves and others. And so when the opportunity arises to engage in them with this natural abstinence, due to our various conditions that we've Grown up into, grown up with, and through and from our social position, our age, our level of education, etc., etc., etc. We have natural abstinence, all of us to varying degrees. We we abstain from uh, deeds that cause harm, 
in a natural way. The second one that the Buddha spoke about of these three beautiful mental factors or mental abstinences is the abstinence that we undertake by undertaking the five precepts or eight precepts or in uh, in the monastic uh, world, sometimes hundreds of precepts or over a hundred precepts. The commitment to live one's life observing the precepts. That's one of the specific ways that these abstinences manifest. So abstaining from killing, abstaining from stealing, from lying, from sexual misconduct, and abstaining from substances and engaging with substances that cloud the mind. They're classically called intoxicants. And I'll talk just a little bit more about that in a few minutes. The third abstinence that the Buddha spoke about quite often from his own experience is the abstinence by eradication that comes about through the fruits of engaging in this super mundane path of the purification of the heart and mind. This Buddha Dhamma path of awakening. What is eradicated is the disposition towards any, what is eradicated is any disposition, any inclination towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. That's profound. Just consider that for a moment. To never even have any, any disposition, any inclination to cause, to engage in any deed that causes any harm. How amazing. How really, truly amazing. So these first two abstinences, the natural abstinence and the abstinence by undertaking the precepts are considered mundane. And that's not a negative uh, evaluation, mundane in the sense that they're, they're, they're common, they're ordinary in a worldly sense. While this last one of the abstinence by eradication is not common in the worldly sense. It's very uncommon in the worldly sense, actually, because it's of a purified, a spiritually purified nature. So I'd like to just offer a a little bit more exploration uh, about the second abstinence that I just mentioned of these three beautiful and wholesome abstinences, the one about undertaking the precepts and looking at just a little bit, looking a little bit at some of the specifics regarding this second abstinence. So right speech. A deliberate abstinence from wrong speech, obviously. not engaging in false speech, not engaging in slanderous speech, not engaging in harsh speech, and lastly, not engaging in frivolous speech. And I actually, uh, also including not engaging in gossip, which is frivolous speech. When I was the resident teacher at IMS for staff, Everybody there, there were 21 people in those days. I think they have a bigger staff now, but um, they all felt that this particular abstinence was the most challenging. Daily life, challenging, right speech. They found it the most challenging. If you think about and are really honest with yourself about what you talk about 
not maybe all the time for sure, but some of the time. Frivolous speech is probably pretty common for all of us. Gossip is probably pretty common for all of us. And we very often just don't notice. We just go on about it, with it. So it's really a good one to practice, to take a look at. I remember years ago, Joseph Goldstein said that at one point, and it was in relationship to this abstinence, he decided for a period of time that he would not talk about anybody who wasn't present. I don't know if it went on for a week or two or a month. I doubt if it was a month, but it was a length of time. It wasn't just a day or two. Not speak about anybody who was not present. He said it was really hard. And he found himself having to stop himself many, many times just with this one little kind of way of talking that he felt sometimes was not uh, uh, kind, not uh, fair, uh, and maybe not even true, and uh, sometimes harsh. And he just decided to experiment. It was, he said it was worthwhile, very worthwhile. I'm sure it was, and very challenging. So right speech. The second one I wanted to look at a little bit, or there's two here, right action. So in this case, right action means the deliberate and mindful abstinence from harmful bodily actions, such as killing, not taking, not taking what has not been offered, as it's classically called stealing. But I think if we say not taking what has not been offered, it becomes very much more uh, all-inclusive and profound for us in small ways and big ways. And as we practice, it becomes more and more subtly sensed, seen, and known as our practice deepens. And then, of course, the last part of this right action that's mentioned is abstaining from harmful or hurtful, and I'm adding selfish sexual conduct. And selfish sexual conduct is something to consider. And that can be subtle or it can be, of course, quite, quite uh, blatant. So something to take a look at. The last one I wanted to mention with this is right livelihood. So deliberate abstinence from wrong livelihood, obviously. And it's classically spoken of as dealing in poisons and weapons and intoxicants, animals for slaughter or people being used in unwholesome or harmful ways. And classically that's listed as slaves. We can say that this, this aspect of right livelihood is regarding not engaging in work that is selfishly oriented in usury ways regarding all other living beings, humans and otherwise. And that becomes very inclusive and brings us into life as it is here and now for us to observe and uh, explore. As our practice develops and blossoms and matures, we touch into deeper and deeper and more and more subtle levels of intuitive understanding in relationship to each of these abstinences, which then in turn offers us guidelines towards living a more and more wholesome and a more and more beautiful life. These abstinences function as a shrinking back, we could say, from harmful deeds and manifest as the absence from these kinds of actions. The closest and the most pertinent causes for this are the very special and very wholesome and beautiful qualities of faith 
and of shame of engaging in harmful deeds, the hiri and hiri and the fear of wrongdoing, otapa. And I'd also like to add that another pertinent cause for shrinking back from abstaining from harmful actions is living a relatively simple life and having few wants and wishes. And I feel that for those of us that are really devoted, dedicated to practice, that this quite naturally unfolds. that we're inclining more and more towards a simpler life. And we incline more and more towards having fewer wants and wishes or seeming needs. And this really supports a wholesome life more and more. The last of this long list, we finally come to the last of it, uh, of these wholesome and beautiful mental, mental factors, mental states that are very definitely developing through our practice is non-delusion. And this is the wisdom faculty. The wholesome and beautiful mental factor of intuitive understanding, intuitive insight, which in its essence is really the which is the essence, I should say, of the, our path of practice. As we connect and sense and see and know more and more often, more and more deeply with the three universal characteristics of all phenomena, the constantly changing impermanent characteristic, anicca in Pali, the, sat, the unsatisfactory or dukkha nature of all phenomena because of its constant changing and impermanent nature, and the not self, not permanent, not static or not solid, and the totally interdependent, always in process, always in constant flux nature of all physical and mental phenomena. Liberation of high heart and mind are close at hand. The writer, Carlos Castañeda, said this, a person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it and then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to really clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states that we've looked at this evening in relationship to your own practice experience as concentration and mindfulness and insight and wisdom and metta continue to blossom is that with knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring, we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, recognize, and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other aversive reactions that sometimes come up with some of these experiences. And very important, without misunderstandings and misinterpretations, but rather what is Classic, rather with what is classically called dispassion. Dispassion, which is very closely related to equanimity. This is what allows the continuing development of our practice to keep unfolding and blossoming and bearing fruit. And I wanted to mention that and maybe you've seen this on the bulletin board, the list, there is a list of all of these uh, wholesome and beautiful mental states uh, 
listed that you can download if you are, are interested in having this list to uh, inspire yourself with. You're welcome to take it. It's there waiting for you to take. So I'd like to close the talk this evening with another poem by another wonderful poet who I've uh, already read once, uh, one poem of hers in the retreat, who's, who died uh, recently in the last couple of years, Mary Oliver. And this poem she called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two salsa trees and he might've said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma and thank you for your practice. And let's close the, this Dhamma talk evening as usual, chanting the sharing of blessings together. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, 
May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled.